Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. In a minute or two, we'll hear from two analysts, Sandra Cuff and Alex Main, on the situation in Honduras. Following a fraudulent election last November, which itself came after a coup and extended political violence. And at the bottom of the hour, Janet Capron discusses her semi-fictional memoir of her life as a bohemian prostitute in 1970s New York. First, Honduras. On November 26, Honduras held national elections for president and Congress. The presidential race featured a contest between the incumbent, Juan Orlando Hernandez, and Salvador Nasrallah. Hernandez was first elected in 2013 following a coup four years earlier, which saw the elected president, Manuel Zelaya, deposed and sent into exile by the army. That coup was publicly condemned by the U.S., but privately encouraged, with then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton leading the cheering squad. Long-standing Clinton family fixer Lanny Davis was a paid lobbyist for Honduran business interests at the time. Hernandez has run a violently repressive regime, featuring, among other things, the murder of the indigenous environmental activist Berta Casares by U.S.-trained government forces working alongside private mining interests. Under the Honduran constitution, Hernandez should have been limited to a single term, but he found a way around that. He also almost certainly lost the election, but found a way around that as well, and had himself declared the victor. The fraud and the long-standing atmosphere of violent repression have been met with continuing protests, and as we'll hear from Sandra Cuff, protests are going to intensify as the January 27 inauguration date for Hernandez approaches. Sandra Cuff is a freelance journalist who spent much of the last 15 years in Honduras. You can find her work on her website, Sandra Cuff, that's C-U-F-F-E dot com. Sandra Cuff. Honduras had an election, what, about a month ago. Uh, the, um, the ruling party won under suspicious circumstances. Uh, first of all, how, do you, how um, believable do you think the results are? There's a lot of a lot of doubt has been cast on the results. So the general elections were held in Honduras on November 26th. First of all, the constitution doesn't allow for re-election, um, but there was sort of a finicky Supreme Court ruling that they don't actually have the authority to do. So the incumbent president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, was the ruling party candidate, and there was an opposition alliance running one candidate against him. Um, and the initial results that were released... You know, the night of the election, nine hours after polls closed, showed that the opposition candidate had a five-point lead. The system then crashed when results started being input and transmitted after that. Uh, that five-point lead that was supposedly irreversible, you know, well over half of the um, votes had been tallied at that point. So it was an irreversible trend, even according to one of the, the um, electoral tribunal magistrates. And that lead just went to nothing. And then, you know, later on, the, you know, this sort of happened over a period of days. The ruling party incumbent president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, came out the winner. So a lot of doubt was cast by the international election observation missions that were in the country. Uh, the two biggest ones, or the main ones, were from the Organization of American States and from the European Union. So early on, they questioned a whole series of irregularities, not just with the system crashing and the reversal of the trend, um, but, you know, different um, like election credential trafficking and all sorts of things throughout the whole process leading up to election day, during election day and in the um, tallying and transmission of the results. So there were no official results for several weeks. You know, there was like a partial recount. Um, Basically, it ended up finally being that the Electoral Tribunal stuck to their results of the incoming president winning. 
there was massive protests already going on all around the country by the Opposition Alliance and uh, supporters. And the Organization of American States did not validate the election results. And the head of the OAS, Luis Almagro, actually called for new elections. So it's really been a chaotic, a chaotic time. The United States did end up recognizing the results of the election. It's only one of a few dozen countries, maybe 30 or a few more than that, um, that have done so. And so inauguration is going to be January 27th. And there's going to be a week of total chaos leading up to that. For the OAS to uh, cast out of the elections, that's pretty unusual uh, for the OAS, given its history, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think it sort of points to two things. One is the just like really egregious nature of the quote unquote irregularities, i.e. fraud, um, that took place in this election um, was pretty hard to, you know, like brush under the rug or overlook. And then the other thing is that um, many people have pointed out is that because the OAS generally does not speak out against irregularities in countries, you know, that are sort of U.S. allies, but it does when there's issues of questionable constitutionality of re-election and, you know, different elections in Latin American countries that lean more to the left. So a lot of people have sort of pointed out that for the OAS to retain any shred of potential, even credibility when it's speaking out um, about things going on in other countries, they couldn't stay silent on the fraud that happened in Honduras. Uh, this election, of course, came after uh, a coup uh, in 2009, followed by you know, lots of violence and repression. This is not an ideal environment to hold a fair election in, is it? No, it isn't. So there was a coup d'etat in 2009 um, that deposed elected President Manuel Zelaya. He's actually now the coordinator of the Libre Party that grew out of resistance to the coup. Um, and the Libre Party is the main force within the opposition alliance. So he's actually the coordinator of the opposition alliance. But yeah, so after the coup, it's almost sort of in some ways what's going on now, which is a bit more of like an electoral coup, is quite similar to what happened after the 2009 coup, you know, like massive protests, massive outrage, you know, initially the government suspended um, certain constitutional rights and freedoms, there was a military imposed curfew, there's been like ongoing protests, there's been tons of repression, you know, in this case now human rights organizations have documented more than 30 killings, there have been hundreds of people wounded, state security forces have opened fire on protesters. But yeah, a lot of it is, you know, you can trace a lot of things back to the coup. Following the coup, a few months later, there were elections that were boycotted by a lot of people and seen as illegitimate. But that's when the National Party came back into power. And then again, when the current president was elected four years ago. And so in the past, you know, since the coup, there's been a lot of concentration of power in the executive branch. Um, so that the ruling party now controls, you know, the presidency, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, the Electoral Tribunal, Congress, etc. Um, so it's a really difficult context in which to, you know, for there to be any way to even respond to or challenge what seems to be glaring election fraud. And when Venezuela did things like that, of course, you, uh, Washington was full of outrage. But uh, when uh, Honduras is doing this sort of thing, um, uh, it's indifference or approval coming from Washington. Is that it? Yeah, it is. And it goes back to even, you know, before this. So 
you know, many constitutions in Latin America because of the decades of military rule, dictatorships, horrific human rights violations, genocide in the case of Guatemala. Um, because of that, many of the constitutions, when countries were moving from military rule to civilian rule, they've always had a one-term limit for the presidency. So there's no re-election in the constitution of many Latin American countries. And so that has been shifting in different ways. In Honduras, the only way to change those articles, there's no way to change form those articles that, um, like the term limit, the only way to do it is to have a national constitutional assembly and create a new constitution. But so there is, you know, this irregular way in which supposedly it was reformed to allow for re-election. But yeah, you're right. The U.S. in other cases where there have been governments that are, you know, more antagonistic or at least not as friendly to U.S. interests, um, the U.S. has always been really outspoken. Whereas in Honduras, um, the U.S. for a long time just stayed silent on the issue of re-election and then finally came out with a statement, something along the lines of, I can't remember exactly the wording, but something along the lines of, we have to respect the will of the Honduran people. Going back to the uh, 2009 coup, what was Zelaya doing that so outraged uh, the local uh, power structure that uh, a coup happened? It's impossible to definitively isolate any one thing, um, but certainly over the course of his government, he became increasingly open to social movements in the country, more progressive sectors within his own party, um, and had been, you know, there were a number of raising minimum wage, working to ban open pit mining. Um, there were a whole bunch of initiatives that undoubtedly did not please, like, the traditional elite within his own party and um, within the country. But the the justification, the public justification for the coup was that Salaya, the government, had been organizing a non-binding poll um, about like a ballot initiative outside of an election, just like a total non-binding survey, asking people whether they'd be interested in a national constitutional assembly. And so the justification for the coup, which happened on the day that that poll was to have taken place, um, June 28, 2009, was that his goal was re-election. So that, you know, the argument was he wants to do this for re-election, but it was a non-binding you know, survey for there to be a national constitutional assembly that would have to be an actual ballot initiative. It wouldn't have been possible, even had he been pursuing that, um, for that to happen within his presidency, like to be reelected himself. So it's, it's within really not that many years. In 2009, the justification for the coup was that the president was seeking reelection. And now you have not even a decade later, a president who actually has sought re-election against the Constitution and has been supposedly re-elected. And let's talk some about the violence under the, um, the current regime. Uh, who have been the targets? What's the extent of the violence? Uh, who are the perpetrators? So, I mean, there's a very high level of state violence all the time that definitely spiked after the coup and has been um, human rights violations by state security forces have been a constant, you know, before the coup, but spiked after the coup. Uh, in the current context of the post-electoral crisis, it's the entire state apparatus. So a lot of people have pointed out that the majority of the killings in which state security forces have been involved, it's the military police, which is not civilian police. It's a branch of the armed forces. It was created when the current president in the previous administration, he was head of the Congress, um, and he's really been channeling as president a lot of funding and support into the military police, which is seen sort of as his own force. So while they have been the ones 
to open fire, shoot, and kill protesters and others in many, but not all, of the killings. There's also been repression by pretty much every branch of the national police, you know, from riot police, special forces, um, the civilian police, army, you know, they've also been involved in you know, wounding people, in detaining protesters. There have been more than a thousand people who have been detained. Um, there's probably going to be a pretty severe crisis in terms of political prisoners going forward after inauguration. So, yeah, it really is the entire state apparatus under this administration. I'm speaking with the freelance journalist Sandra Cuff. If we go back to the, the Central American Wars of the 80s, those involved actual armed revolutions. What are they fighting now? I mean, are this peaceful protesters, uh, indigenous people uh, protesting mining? I mean, there, there's no armed revolution happening in, in Honduras. What, what's driving them so crazy? Um, no, there isn't. There's just massive, massive protest and unrest. I mean, also highway blockades, road blockades. Um, the country's been shut down a few times since the elections. Um, you know, the highways to the port, the entire sort of like motor of the economy or much of it is up in the northwest of the country. And that's where there's the biggest base for the opposition alliance. And, you know, it's interesting also to go back to the 80s, um, your sort of reference to that, because during that time, there actually was a much smaller revolutionary movement in Honduras compared to the other countries. But part of the reason is because Honduras has always been the U.S., headquarters within Central America. So it's been the longest and most faithful U.S. ally. There's a massive joint military base here. The U.S. Southern Command operates the Joint Task Force Bravo out of Honduras. Um, there are forward operating locations all over Honduras. There's massive amounts of um, aid to security forces, both police and military. Um, so Honduras has always been a really important point for the U.S. within the region. Um, and so in the 80s and earlier, dissent was probably crushed faster here than elsewhere. Like this is where the Contras operated out of against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. It's where the armies of El Salvador and Guatemala were trained in counterinsurgency tactics. Um, so Honduras has always kind of been the center of things, the key U.S. ally and dissent here is often crushed pretty quickly as a result. And uh, Berta Casares was murdered, what, about two years ago. Uh, what have we learned uh, since then about uh, who did it and why? Yeah, so there's been quite a, you know, a bit of focus on that. And um, there was recently a new report by sort of an independent group of um, international experts. So there have been several people have been arrested in connection with her murder, However, the higher-up intellectual authors have not been, which is what the organization that she was the coordinator of, the Civic Council of uh, Popular Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, COPIN, and others are demanding. But even within the people who have been arrested, and so you can sort of see who was collaborating to plan this murder, um, there are people from the armed forces involved, and there are people from linked to the hydroelectric dam company um, that she had been, you know, campaigning against have both been involved, even just in these lower level um, arrests. And what about, uh, you said we've got an inauguration in about 10 days and you're expecting lots of uh, protests in the run up to that. Uh, what, what, what do you anticipate? Um, so just the other day, a couple of days ago, the Opposition Alliance released their 
um, a couple plans, including the plan for a week of a national week of action leading up to the inauguration. So this Saturday, as of 6 a.m., um, they're calling for protests, mobilizations, road and highway blockades around the country. Um, in the Northwest, those have the potential to be ongoing and not just that one day. The following day, because here um, Congress gets started a few days before the presidential inauguration to like participate in the inauguration. So the opposition alliance from the Libre and Pinu parties, those who were elected and supporters are going to be doing an action outside Congress on Sunday. And then the three days leading up to the January 27th inauguration, there is just probably the country's going to be shut down. They're calling for, you know, occupations and blockades of the airports, all highways, um, ports, probably borders, etc. So if what happened in you know, especially last month in December when there were sort of similar actions and ongoing blockades. If um, the situation is similar, then the government response will probably be um, extremely violent. Uh, what, if anything, has the United States been doing uh, in the last weeks? So the United States, when the, you know, before the official results were announced and there was this, all this back and forth, all this, you know, major alarm and critique raised by the observation missions, um, the U.S. played a really prominent role. So there's no actual U.S. ambassador in the country right now. There's just the charge d'affaires. And so after the observation missions had raised these issues and finally there was an agreement that, okay, there's going to be this partial recount. Um, this was ages later. When that was going on with no opposition participation or, you know, support whatsoever, but the so the U.S. Charge d'Affaires even appeared inside the facilities that the Electoral Tribunal was using to, you know, count the ballots. Um, she appeared there with the head of the Electoral Tribunal in a press conference, basically validating this, you know, what the opposition and others termed either bogus or very dubious partial recount process. And then when the U.S., you know, after the Electoral Tribunal finally came out with the official results, the U.S. came out and, um, and validated those, which, you know, Nobody here underestimates the the power that the U.S. has in determining what happens in the country. Um, since then, I mean, there's been massive critique. Like, there have been tons of protests outside the U.S. embassy um, recently, just outside the massive joint base that the U.S. Southern Command uses. Um, so, like, the role of the U.S. has not been lost on anyone here. Officially, you know, there are a bunch of calls for dialogue, which the Honduran government is doing with no opposition participation. They're doing it with NGOs. They get a lot of U.S. funding. But the U.S. Charge d'Affaires sort of did stay quiet for a while. Um, she popped up again publicly on Martin Luther King Day with a video to try to encourage Hondurans to peaceful dialogue in the way that the anti-imperialist Martin Luther King would have wanted, I suppose. But yeah, def definitely the U.S. sort of sets the tone for what goes on here in many ways. And has the Trump administration in particular uh, paid much attention uh, to Latin America generally? I mean, you know, it seems that Trump's only interest is building a wall and keeping people out. But uh, have the more professionally minded people uh, in uh, his administration um, developed any kind of policy towards the region that you can tell? I mean, I sort of am much more focused on things on the ground here rather than um, what's going on in D.C., but I mean, uh, the head of Homeland Security 
was part of the Southern Command, was in Honduras. Um, there's definite connections to U.S. militarization here that's been going on for decades of Honduran history and um, the Trump administration. But I'm not sure that um, I would caution against looking at things as this is the Trump administration. You know, the coup um, happened in 2009, U.S. policy whether Democrats or Republicans are in power doesn't necessarily seem to shift too much. There's support for militarization either way. There's support for security forces that are engaged in like horrific human rights violations either way. But definitely it'll come up now with the temporary protected status issue. Um, so the Trump administration just declined to renew that status for El Salvador and they had, you know, slightly basically postponed their decision on Honduras, but that'll be coming up. So that's at least something to definitely keep an eye on up there. And then uh, finally, uh, I imagine uh, the, despite the protests, the inauguration will go on as planned. Uh, what are you expecting? More trouble and more confrontation uh, with the, the the second term of the president? Yeah, it will go on. It'll happen not in a stadium and not with, you know, other heads of state probably present. But um, the inauguration will happen on January 27th. And yeah, I don't think that this is going to be it's definitely not going to be the end of opposition protests and actions and organizing. So things may very well sort of slide into kind of the long haul, like a similar in some way situation to after the coup, when you had huge sectors around organizations around the country that refused to recognize the legitimacy um, of the government or interact with its agencies in any way. You had ongoing protests and you had, you know, ongoing repression. So that's unfortunately potentially what's in store for Honduras over the next few years. I was Sandra Cuff, a freelance journalist who covers Honduras and Central America generally. Her website is at sandracuff.com. And now a few words on U.S. policy towards the region from Alexander Maine, an analyst with the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. Uh, more broadly, what uh, is this administration, the Trump administration, full of nativists and yahoos and provincials? Um, what is their general attitude towards Latin America? Are they paying much attention or is it just they see it as a threat that needs to be walled off? Well, I think, yeah, Trump is, is paying very little attention. He has his two agenda items, really, which are um, dealing with NAFTA uh, and, you know, going back and forth on whether he's he wants to abandon uh, NAFTA altogether, um, and you know, building this wall along the along the border with Mexico. Uh, I think those are the real priorities for Trump. And uh, beyond that, I think he's uh, allowed some of the real extremists on Latin American policy within the Republican Party to sort of take over the agenda. And we've certainly seen this on Cuba, um, where you know the administration is now committed to sort of reversing the process of normalization under uh, Obama, though that in fact they haven't taken many concrete steps in that direction, um, thankfully, perhaps. And, and also on, on Venezuela, where they've taken a very, very hard line, sanctions, financial sanctions that, that are really deeply damaging to the Venezuelan economy. And Trump has even come out and talked about a military option and possible you know, military intervention in uh, Venezuela. Um, and, you know, this is clearly the influence of figures such as um, Senator Marco Rubio, who, you know, of course, is part of a very hard right wing sort of anti-Castro community there in South Florida. 
and and he really seems to be playing one of the biggest roles in, in setting this agenda. So um, things weren't weren't great under Obama. Of course, you know it's the Obama administration did ultimately help the 2009 coup in Honduras succeed, um, and after that supported the governments that came after the coup um, that have militarized the country and have directly supported that militarization that's occurred, um, which has been, of course, linked to the deaths of all these activists um, with a good deal of funding and training and, and even shipping in uh, Colombian trainers who, of course, were trained themselves in counterinsurgency uh, by the U.S. Um, years ago. Uh, so um, it's really a continuation of uh, these very bad policies under uh, Obama that I think that have really contributed to a situation of growing instability in, in Honduras, a real political crisis that's ongoing. Um, and that's been met with total, you know, repression uh, by the Honduran government. And uh, under Trump, it's arguably grown worse, particularly with some of the generals in his, in his administration, like General Kelly, uh, that are very supportive of, um, you know, this policy in Honduras, particularly because um, they greatly value the U.S. military assets there. Um, the U.S., of course, uh, has sort of joint control with Honduras of a key base, the Soto Cano base, which is really um, the most important U.S. military presence in the Central America Caribbean uh, region. So they, I think, look at Honduras in real geostrategic uh, terms and, you know, want to make sure that they have uh, very strong political allies in power, This, you know, even if those allies uh, are very authoritarian, um, very involved in corruption, uh, and there's a good deal of evidence of their involvement in, in corruption and even drug trafficking. That was Alexander Bain, analyst with the Center for Economic and Policy Research in D.C. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of Jenny Ondioline by Stereolab, whose lyrics, although they're hard to hear, are about lift, hope, and struggle. And now a radical change of gears into the grimy but exhilarating world of 1970s New York City. Janet Capron grew up in Park Avenue, in a family with more pedigree than money. Not charmed by the straight life, she got deeply into the world of prostitution and drugs. She wrote about that time in a hybrid memoir novel called Blue Money, published last fall by Unnamed Books. It's the furthest thing from a morality tale. As my friend Helene Olin, who introduced me to Capron and her book, said in her blurb, it's a total reboot of a genre hitherto dominated by the male bad boy writer. What's often seen as louche among men is taken as scandalous among women, and Capron will have none of that. The book's epigraph excerpts lyrics from the Van Morrison song Blue Money, which explains my opening question. We'll hear some of the song at the end of the show. About two and a half minutes into the interview, Janet Capron mentions a thread about John Maynard Keynes. She was referring to a discussion on my Facebook page of Keynes' elitism and his contempt for the working class. Okay, here's Janet Capron. Let's start uh, with the title, uh, Blue Money. Uh, It's from a song? No, actually, it's not. It's an expression that I was familiar with, and Van Morrison was also familiar with it. And really what it means is black market money, you know, like blue laws or Midnight Blue, or Shady. He did give me the lyrics, by the way. Charge nothing. What exactly is the mix of fact and fiction in in the book? It's mostly fact-based, right, but fictionalized? Oh, thank you for asking. No, I wrote it. I'm going to be really forthcoming about this. I wrote it as a novel because I was, first of all, a writer, and this material was kind of foisted on me. I had a professor at Columbia, a wonderful writing professor, J.R. Humphreys. And um, I just floated a little story about a massage parlor hooker and a nerdy professor, kind of a blue angel kind of thing. And he, when he, he found out that I had this material, he said, you've got to mine this. And he also said that if you don't write about your 20s soon, you will forget them. You will lose them. We never lose our childhood. And of course, the present is always with us. But The 20s can be uh, forgotten. So that was another compelling reason. This was my coming-of-age story. But I did not want to be constrained by facts. uh, Because, you know, as any fiction writer likes to say, that's not the best way to get to the truth. I depend on the imagination. I think the imagination is wonderful. But, of course, the most salacious chapters in the book are totally, (laughs) it's totally from memory. Because there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have been able to make up if I hadn't lived it. Um, I think Herman Melville said, more real than reality itself. Yes, yes, yes. Now, there are certainly some recognizable places and scenes in there. Like, you know, there's a Mac, Max's Kansas City is very visible, right? Right, yeah. So for someone who's familiar with New York of the 60s and 70s, it's going to seem somewhat familiar. Yes, I hope so. And uh, the narrator, uh, who's also named Janet, uh, is a rich kid, grew up in Park Avenue, wasp father, German-Jewish mother. Uh, I came from money. My grandfather was a, was a newspaper publisher. And, uh, and it was interesting because I, I was following that thread yesterday about John Maynard Keynes. He was uh, an advisor to Roosevelt, one of the authors of The New Deal. And one of the things he did was uh, kept pushing Roosevelt to meet with John Maynard Keynes. So anyway, so that that's my background. But but there was there was no money left by the time I came of age. So I grew up in tremendous splendor. 
he bought a Park Avenue apartment for my mother and me. And I went to the best schools and, you know, I had all of that. And then I uh, grew up and there was no money. It was a shock. I never quite believed it. It was kind of like it must be around a corner or something. Where is it? You know. So and then I at some point had to make a living, which was really horrifying. So did did you grow up with a sense that many upper class kids grow up with that the world is yours for the taking, or did you? Absolutely. And also, I grew up in a time when women were didn't work, so it was all. I mean, it owed me a living. This world, and it was really awfully. It was horrifying to find out that there was uh, no money. How old are you when you had this rude awakening? I, I wasn't really conscious of it until I was uh, in recovery, had gone to Columbia, got two degrees from Columbia, and was writing my novel, and or what it's now called Mostly True Memoir, and um, I had to go to work. And my mother just thought that was the most horrible thing because she thought I should be home writing every day. Someone with my gifts should be sitting at home at the computer and writing. She said, oh, my God, if only you didn't have to make a living. This is so terrible. <laughs> that was my background. This is our, our value system. Yeah. There was, there was no Puritan work ethic in my family, I don't think, not much. <laughs> so you confronted the fact that there was no money and you had to work, and what did you do then? I went to work. At first, I went to work. I ended up in pharmaceutical advertising. I was terrified. I had no idea that I could make a living for myself. I just didn't know if I could. And I had stayed, you know, in, at Columbia in the cloister for seven years. So now I'm pushing 40, and I still don't know whether I can make a living. And I, I, what I did was I, I went to work as a copy editor. I was making 30 bucks an hour, which I thought was a lot of money at the time. I was living in a garret, but in the West Village, but nevertheless, teeny tiny apartment under the eaves, a real, you know, writer's garret. And, um, and I would make enough money to buy some time. And then I would take a couple of months off and just write. And then after I owed a few months rent, I would go back and do freelance copy editing, make enough money to pay the rent. How did you get into uh, hooking? In the book, I, I write about this Svengali I had. We were all hippies. We were defiant rebels. And I wouldn't dignify it by saying we were criminals, but we were certainly happy to live outside the law. It was pretty much in the air. I mean, he, this guy, I call him benign Charlie Manson, he had a lot of women. He was devoted to women in a funny way. He was much, he was much more interested in them than men. And this was at a time when a lot of men didn't even like to converse with women. But anyway, so a lot of the women he knew were doing this, and he encouraged me to do it, too, because why not? It was a way to make a living and, and stick it to the man at the same time, you know, because it, it, uh, it was very consciously rebellious and defiant. And there were a lot of women in those days, in the 70s, who were like that. There was an organization called Prostitutes Organization of New York, which was based on... It was like a chapter of Margot St. James, who had a, a, a very famous, uh, I don't know what you call it, a union or group out in San Francisco. And so this is where a certain kind of feminism and, uh, you know, sexual acting out and everything else conflated. 
And and that was the, these were my people. Yeah, there's a fictionalized version of Pony that shows up in the book briefly, right? Right. Honey, Honey, I call it, yeah. Now, you didn't feel like you were falling into a pit of moral degradation from any kind of traditional sense, or, you know, certainly second wave feminism didn't approve of prostitution either. So how did you feel against those uh, twin towers of uh, a moral rectitude? I don't, it just, you know, raises my hackles every time. I think it is the worst kind of hypocrisy. I really do. The idea that a woman can give herself, and let's say she's not getting anything out of it, okay? She's just, for whatever reason, for whatever hidden transactional reason, is allowing a man to use her. And as long as she doesn't charge money for that, it's okay now. We don't have to be virgins anymore. We're allowed to sleep around, but, you know, God forbid we should charge for it. I I don't, you know, it doesn't compute. I don't get it. I really don't. I never did. There's some kind of like romantic view of sexuality behind it, isn't there, that, that the money debases it? Yeah, I think, you know what I think is debased? I think it's ignorance about women's sexuality in general debases everything. In other words, I think that if, if we really examined our customs, our sexual mores, it would be pretty horrifying in anything but romantic. I mean, if we really looked honestly at intimate relate sexual relationships, they say that um, this is this was true a few years ago. And honestly, I'm not speaking as a scientist now. I can't really corroborate it. But that but the, I think the general consensus is that only a small minority of women actually achieve orgasm through uh, through sexual intercourse. Now, that is not, you know, a, a basic biological condition. And when I was, uh, I was reading uh, uh, Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror, and in the 14th century, they actually believed that women had to have an orgasm in order to get pregnant. So what I'm saying is around the world, you know, this is all Germain Greer. This is not, I mean, it's not an original idea with me, but... I grew up with Germaine Greer and um, and believing fervently. I mean, she's just brilliant. She really is. And she's been, I think, because there's too much that people, for whatever, whatever reason, don't want to look at. The female eunuch is a great classic. And this is this is a uh, this condition is, as we know, global. And she, and what she said, this is back in 1970 when the book was came out in the States. You know, that uh, this neutering of women was, uh, we did it in a de facto way, not not like in Africa where they do actual genital cutting. We, we do it in a de facto way here. And, I, and sadly, this is still true. This is 2018, still true. We're listening to Janet Capron, author of Blue Money from Unnamed Books. What does the time of the years in prostitution teach you about women's sexuality? A lot. A lot. Really. I know you wouldn't think so because money, money supposedly obliterates all the the beauty and the romance. No, I mean, uh, well, first of all, I learned, as Mark Twain said, that we really are, we have amazing capacity. (laughs) Let's face it. We really do. But also I learned something which I say in the book, which is very rarely a chemistry would completely overcome whatever the situation was. 
And uh, and as I say in the book, with uh, you know, rarely just the way in life, it's rare. It's rare there too, of course, but it happens. And uh, you know, that's that's interesting too, right? What do you mean by chemistry? I mean that sometimes you just click with somebody, whether you know he, he's a John, he's a, he's a client, but it doesn't happen every day, of course. But of course, you're not supposed to do that, though, are you? Of course, the the, the rules of the profession. That's so wonderful because thank you for saying that because exactly to my point. Now, obviously, this is not a broad consensus, and I'm not talking about every kind of subjugation and enslavement that goes on around the world, you know, young girls being kidnapped, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about children going into, you know, sex, being sexual captives or anything like that. What I'm talking about is from my experience, but my experience as, as narrow as that is still tells me that most of what people believe about prostitution is a complete and utter lie, all these received opinions that everybody has. For one thing, the idea that whores are obedient to some kind of, I don't know what authority, it says, oh no, you can't enjoy it because you're getting money for it. Ha, not so. That's just another one of those myths that I would love to lay to rest forever if I could. And especially nice women subscribe to this. And uh, it's like, uh, I think a lot of men know better. Even men who've never actually been to a prostitute, they have more familiarity with that world than women do. So one of the reasons I wrote the book was to familiarize women with that experience. One of, one of the striking things about it, though, is, you know, you, there are a lot of drugs in the, in, in the book, too. But, you know, in the end, you, you know, sober up, go straight. But there's no regret there's no sense that you'd gone to this visit into hell and you've come back to the surface and all is well now. There's, there are no hints of it even during the period, periods where you know, you're narrating this, the sex and the drugs. There's just no sense of, of, uh, of distaste or discomfort about that. It's really refreshing since you know, it's standard for a lot of the books in this genre is to, uh, you know, it's all a mora- morality tale of redemption. Uh, you don't feel that in the least, right? No, <laughs> not in the least. No, <laughs> thank you for <laughs> appreciating that. Absolutely not. So, yeah, how would how would you um, recount that time, which is now what forty plus years ago? Say you're talking to a young woman about it, not not just reading, not just someone who's reading the book, but you know, looking for advice on life. What would you tell her? I, I had a woman that very uh, was wonderful. It was at a Q and A, one of my readings, and she was really censorious, you know. And she said, "Would you let your daughter do that?" And I said to her, now listen, uh, chances are this hypothetical daughter of mine would be the product of me and some alcoholic guy or some sober alcoholic guy, but I, you know, I tend to move in those circles. And so now she's the product of two alcoholics. Chances are she would be an alcoholic too. Good, you know, odds are in the favor that she would be. I said, I'm a hell of a lot more worried about that than if she ever turned a trick to pay for her NYU law degree or something. I said that, you know, drug, alcohol, drug addiction can kill you. It's terrible. It it robs you of everything. And that would worry me a lot more than her turning a trick or two. Please. 
What was the experience like recalling this time of your life in writing the book? I mean, did you have a nostalgia for it? Uh, any kind of regret slip in? Matter of fact, what was it? What was it like? There were the end, you know, and I don't, I don't. Spoiler alert! There's, it gets pretty dark at the end, and uh, I didn't want to write about that. There was a, a, a chapter in that book that has to do with a rape. It's graphic. It's terrible. I did not even want to write about that. And my dear mother said to me, you got to, because otherwise what you're doing is you're just saying it's all fun and games. And it wasn't that. Of course not. It was a very dark adventure uh, and even a cautionary tale, I think. But um, I, I, you know, it was painful. It was painful to go back there and relive that. I couldn't sleep when I was writing that. But as far as some of the in the beginning, when what I wanted to do was beguile the reader somewhat as I was beguiled. In other words, I thought I had the world by the tail for a while there. I did. And I kind of want the reader to get, you know, a little bit seduced by that, too. And then it was like the bottom came up to meet me. Bang. The next thing I know, you know, it's it, it gets really dark really fast. But I, I did want to recapture what it feels like to be high, which is not easy to do. To write, you know, to write about that altered state when you're not in it. But it would be false to the experience not to at least why, you know, why is it that people are addicts or why do they take drugs? It's because they get high, honestly. <laughs> they always forget to mention that part in the morality tales, yes. Yeah, a friend of mine who uh, has been bipolar for much of his grown-up life uh, says that when you're in the manic phase, you don't want to take the drugs because it feels so good. You don't want to stop that feeling. And you know, I think a lot of the shrinks don't uh, don't acknowledge it. That you know, it feels really good sometimes. That's right, and that's why that's why manic depressives are some of the hardest people to treat for that reason. But it's really striking how you know the. Portions of the book that get dark towards the end, or I don't know, 10% of it or something, it's like 80% or more of it is, sounds like a lot of fun, really. I don't know if it was fun in the sense of raising a rose garden is fun. You know, it wasn't a quiet, rewarding kind of fun. It was exciting and it was dangerous sometimes. It was a dark adventure. And it was experience. And I, one of the things that um, our age of, you know, age of innocence, Edith Wharton, speaking of, you know, class writers of a certain class, but Edith Wharton is a great feminist in my mind. And she, this age of innocence is, is all about that is the fact that uh, the only women, the only women who had value to that society in that place and time were, uh, these are, these are upper class women were uh, tabula rasas. That if you had any experience at all, you were immediately practically a pariah. That's what the age of innocence is about. I think that women have suffered terribly in that um, experience has been so prescribed for us, especially uh, bourgeois women. In other words, like if you look in if you look in India, the only women who are free are the untouchables, and the the, the ones uh, in the upper classes in the old days were in Purda. They never even got to leave the house. So, uh, you know, in some ways, ironically, a, a women, this is, this is uh, one of the things that, that fascinates and preoccupies me is this, this uh, contradiction of class and, uh, and sex and what exactly, you know, what exactly is unique to, to women. And it does vary over class. And I think it's almost 
dwarfs for bourgeois women, in fact. Which leads me to my final line of questioning, um, the current moment. What are your thoughts on, you know, from your experiences in the 70s, what are your thoughts on the Me Too moment? Well, you know, you, as you can imagine, I'm really dismayed by the Puritanism. And I'm also kind of horrified that women are now so eager to paint themselves as children without agency and prenubile children who uh, not only does there seem nowhere is there female desire in all of this, you know, like the idea of a, a heterosexual woman uh, seeing a male penis and then, and then says she's traumatized by it, that concerns me. It really does. Uh, I mean, how far down this road are we going to go? And and the fact that um, women seem to have are saying they are so powerless uh, in these situations, I I don't it, I can't relate to it. But you know, they would they would respond by saying that uh, it's about uh, um, male aggression, male invasiveness, and male inattentiveness to the desires of women. And, yes, and this it, is what I think. I think in the Robobo community. Okay, they found out if they give Robobos enough territory, it turns out that women, or females rather, are always the, the uh, initiators. So the males are looking for the female to initiate or, or they, don't, they don't even try. Okay, there's very little rape in this community, by the way. So I would suggest, and I think it's a lot, I think it would be a lot healthier, a lot healthier, maybe more true to our to our real nature, if women were the initiators and men just stopped initiating altogether. And if a woman is interested in you, she gets to come on to you. And that way you, you'll know for sure. You don't even have to take a risk. You can be the passive ones. After all, you're a lot bigger and stronger. You should be anyway. I don't like men coming on me, period. It, 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 I feel like a mark. I feel like prey. I, I like to be the initiator. I always have. So I, you know, I, I would, I would prescribe that for all of society if I had my druthers. <laughs> I think you may have a hard time getting men to embrace that though. Yeah. But you know, that's really, at least we would get to have our own agency and we could own our own sexuality. That's really where, I, where I'm coming from. I, I just don't want that to get lost in all of this any more than it is already. I was Janet Capron, author of Blue Money from Unnamed Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the Van Morrison song whose lyrics provide the epigraph for Capron's book, Blue Money. Till next week, bye. Photographer smile, take a break for a while, take a risk, do your very best, take five points.